0: We're taking our reading from Romans 8, verse 28 to 30, and it says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And this only justified; he also glorified. Now, this passage is a very, very familiar passage to anyone that is uh, familiar with scriptures, and we use it most of the time in different situations. And we come to the promise of this text and says, "God is going to work things together for our good at the end of the day." So, most of the time, we say basically, if we uh, um, if you are going for that job interview. You are going to come out to the sources. You are going to get employed. That is the good. We define it as if you are going for that competition. You are going to come at first position. That is what we define good as. But one thing I would like to ask is basically is our definition of good truly God's definition of good? Because there are sometimes our definition of uh, good might be marred with our kind of sinful desires, and God, those sinful desires. Our reflection of good will not be reflecting what is God's own ultimate good and desires. And we need to understand what Paul is saying here for us to be able to understand what is the promise here. Because if we do not understand what is the promise or what Paul, the Holy Spirit is saying through the Apostle Paul here, we might just be open on something that won't truly come out, that won't even come to pass. We will be open on something that God hasn't even given, or the promise that God hasn't even said. But when we truly understand what this promise is, then we can find comfort in what Paul is saying here. So basically, I am going to be interpreting what the verse is saying on a big scale, just interpreting it. Then we are going to explain what each word in the verse mean. And we are going to look at the bigger scale of things, that what does this verse actually mean for us today? How can we apply this verse to our life, basically? That's what we're going to be looking at it. Now, we notice, basically, that what this verse says is that The verses are explaining that God is working all things together for good, for people who love God. And those are the same people who are called according to his purpose. And these are the same people who are called saints in verse uh, 27. And these are the same people who are believers. They are already believers. It doesn't mean that God is causing all things, basically, to work together for everyone in the world. It's causing things to work together for people who are believers in Christ Jesus. Now, these are the codes also in verse 28. And now, the code in verse 28 is best understood as appointed or assigned. He uses in Romans 1 verse 1. It says, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, or Romans 1 7, was it necessary for Christ to suffer? Sorry. Uh, Romans 1 verse 1. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the way Paul uses "called" there, yeah, basically, as sent basically, it means assigned. If you see Romans 1.1, 1, 1, it says, Paul, a born servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Called as an apostle, it means appointed as an apostle assigned as an apostle, that is the only way that can mean, have a meaning. And that is the same Greek word that is used in verse 28. And that is the way it's to be understood. An example would be, for example, I would say an attorney or a barrister is said to have been called to bath. So that is exactly what it's saying here. say these people are called according to his purpose. They have been appointed according to his purpose. They have been assigned according to his purpose which refers to their appointment, to their role. Now, so when an individual is in Christ, they become called, they become elect. Paul is giving assurance to these Christians in Rome that things will work unto good for them. All things will work together for their good as they will ultimately share in Christ's glory, as we see in verse 17. In verse 29, it's, uh, it starts with the word because... So it is beginning an explanation of why paul's audience which is the christians in rome can have assurance that all things work out for good now how can they be confident that suffering which is the context that we are reading the whole context has been from verse 8 i consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed verse 17 now if we are children then we are heirs, heirs of god and close cool with christ if indeed we share in the sufferings, in order that we may also share in the glory. So the context here now is now suffering. So he's not saying that, how can Paul, uh, Paul is saying, he's wanting his um, audience to basically have assurance that all things will work out for their good in this context of suffering. So how can they be confident that suffering won't result in shame, but in glory for those who love God? What evidence does Paul have for this? And the evidence Paul refers to is the past generations of those who loved God who have completed their life journeys through suffering. Verse 29 is looking back at God's dealings with faithful believers in the past. So, those whom God found you are those who loved God in the past. The Christians in Rome can be confident that all things will work out for good for those who love God because that is what already happened to those who loved God in the past. Regarding the faithful believers of the past, God predestined for them that they would be conformed to the image of his son. The reason for that was to get a family ready in advance for Jesus, so that Jesus, in the future from their perspective, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, verse 30 continues to speak of the faithful believers who died in the past. They were called by God, they were justified by God, and were glorified by God. It's God that did all these things. God called them. God justified them. God glorified them. And the pattern is suffering in life and glory through death. And we see this in Luke 24 verse 26. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? So Christ suffered and entered into his glory. Romans eight seventeen also tells us too again. Is if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. That is the pattern of the Christian life: suffering in glory and suffering in life and glory through death. Present believers basically can look back to believers from the past who have already completed their time of suffering and have reached glory with Christ, having held firm in their faith until death. Now, why those present believers are still undergoing present sufferings? And still looking forward to their future glory. Paul uses this uh, look, uh, sorry are still looking forward to their future glory. Now Paul uses the iris tense, which is a tense that means once something that was happened in the past in the Greek. That's what it means for every verb in verse 13. And I consider translated as past tense in the English because it's looking back to past generations who have reached glory. That is the way the text is meant to be understood. It's talking about the people in the past to offer comfort to the people in the present. Now, let's look basically at each of the individual statements Paul makes now. He says basically that God causes all things to work together for good. So, he's implying that this, that God is sovereign, basically. God is working all these things, everything that is going on in your life, God is putting them together, they are working synchronously. Basically, uh, they are working together synchronously. All the good, all the bad things are working together synchronously to work out, and the end result is good. So if you just add basically uh, uh, loss of job, uh, cancer or sickness, if you add the two of them, it will result in good at the end of the day. That's what Paul is saying here. If you had that good job, that good salary, if you add the two together, it's meant to result in good in, at the end of the day. And he it says he's not referring that it's not working together for good for everyone in the world. No, he's saying for those who love God. That is the end result for them. For everything that they go through, the end result is good to those who love God. Now, what does it mean to be a lover of God? First of all, the statement is implying that you are a believer in Christ Jesus. You have repented from your sins and put your trust in Christ Jesus for you to be a lover of God. If you don't believe in Christ Jesus, there's no way you can be a lover of God. Then it means you hate God because he has revealed himself through Jesus Christ. So, if you truly love God, you will believe in His Son and what He has revealed. And that's it that this means that you are known by God. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, if anyone loves God, he is known by Him. He is known by Him. And the opposite is also true. If you do not love God, you are accursed. 1 Corinthians 16.23 says, if you love me, it says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. So, basically, it's not just about, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? The truth test that you love God, is that you are known by God. So, we should be asking ourselves, does God know us? Does God actually have an intimate relationship with God, us? It's not by professing that I'm a lover of God. It's, can God really say you are his? The Bible says the, the, the Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who named the name of the Lord should depart from iniquities. So, if you truly know the name of the Lord, if you truly love God, you will depart from iniquity. God knows those who are His people. That is the thing that is making you a lover of God, is that you are known by God. And that thing this implies is that God is your Father. Your heavenly Father is the one you go to for your needs. Through Christ Jesus, God has become our Father. Because we are now united with Christ. And Christ has now become our brother. Because Christ is the Son of God. And also God, basically. So as our union with Christ, Christ has now become... uh, God has now become our Father through our union with Christ. That is one thing we need to understand. So now we can an intimate relationship with God. We can pray to the Father in a more intimate way. We can bring on our needs to Him. He can change us, basically. Because He is our Father. And He cares for us. Whenever we go wrong, He disciplines us. He takes care of our needs. And He's always there in our time of need. And that thing this implies is this. You keep Christ's commandments if you are a lover of God. John 14, verse 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21 says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Verse uh, verse 23-24 says, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And he will come, and we will come to him, and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So the true test is, if you are a I love our God. Is are you keeping Christ's commandment? Are you keeping His words in you? Is are His words abiding in you? Because in this our contemporary Christianity, there are some people who basically who say that you can love God from the depth of your heart and not follow Christ's commandment. And not be a follower of Jesus. Whatever Christ says in the Gospels do not matter, you just love God, that is all that matters. What Christ is basically saying here that there is no such thing as all this kind of feeling love, that I just love God and I can do whatever I want. He's saying that if you love me, you keep my words. So there is no such thing as such a Christian who is not a follower of Christ. And for you to be a follower of Christ means that you are a student, you are sitting at his feet to learn what he's saying. To keep his word within you. So we are not meant to sugarcoat what Christ is saying. And say no we can do whatever we want. And Christ teaches does not matter. Whatever he teaches on, uh, on different uh, topics doesn't matter. Loving your enemies doesn't matter. On forgiveness. Whatever he taught about that doesn't matter. Whatever he taught about lust doesn't matter. We can't do that. These things are essential for our life, basically. The disciples, basically, said, we could not, we cannot leave you, Master, that to you have the words of eternal life. And these are the words, basically, Christ has given to us. If you keep his words, you, have, you are receiving the words of eternal life. And the eternal life is in Christ Jesus. So how can you divorce the so-called eternal life from Christ Jesus himself? And say I just love God. That's all that matters. And I cannot keep His commandments. It doesn't work that way. The true mark that you are a, a follower of Christ Jesus is that that you love God. Is that you keep Christ's commandments, and you you love righteousness and hate ungodliness or unrighteousness. You are just a lover of righteousness. When you see justice, really, you are so happy in your soul. But when you see injustice, when you see morality prevailing. You get angry in your soul. Your kind of righteous anger just goes within you. That what is the meaning of all this? And you begin to cry out to God to save the city. To save our nation. To save our society from the cadence. Because there's something that stirs up within our spirit when there's lawlessness in our city. When there's no one who worships God. There's, when there's no one who honors God. Everyone is just thinking about themselves. No one is actually thinking about There's actually a righteous judge who is going to judge everyone at the end of the day. So if you truly love God, you will be passionate about righteousness because that's what God loves. I tell you the truth, God loves righteousness. He loves righteousness and hates lawlessness. Most of the time, you see in the scriptures, why do people, at the end of the day, on judgment day, actually do not spend their the eternity with the, with the Father? In the glories of the new heavens and the new earth. Why? It's basically because of lawlessness. You remember the Lord Jesus Christ many said on the last day that when people will come to me, Lord, do we not do miracles? Do we not cast out demons? Do we not prophesy in your name? I never knew you. That is what the Lord Jesus Christ is going to say. You walkers of lawlessness, you doers of lawlessness. And that is the main thing for you to know that you are known by God. For God Christ not to tell you on the last day that I never knew you. You have to be a lover of righteousness and a hater of lawlessness. That is another mark of someone who loves God. Another mark of someone who loves God is that the, you are an heir of the kingdom. You are a co cool heir with Christ. And that is what Paul has said. Basically, he has told us, he says, You are co cool heirs with Christ. You are heirs of God you are to inherit the kingdom of god as a child of god that's what god has kept for us another mark is that you love your neighbors if you truly love god there's something that's going to be worked in your soul that you are going to love your neighbor yeah starting from your brethren the saints do you love the saints Do you love the saints? When you see the saints, when you see believers together, do you love spending your time with them? Do you love giving your time to them? Do you love serving them? How is your relationship with the saints? Because we live in a day where people say, I can just be a believer, I can just be a follower of Christ or a Christian without going to church, without a community of believers, without a gathering of the saints. I don't need that. I can just be an isolated believer on my own. But the true mark that you love God is that you will love His saints and love everyone. You love your neighbors, even your enemies. It just said of our Lord Jesus Christ, it said it grew in wisdom, it grew in favor with God and favor with men. That is the way it goes. If you are growing in favor with God, if you are truly loving God, there is no how that that favor will not flow with favor with men. There is no other love will not flow with love for men, basically. First John, um, First John 3, 17-18 tells us this, But whoever has the words good, and sees his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Let us should not us no love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So what John is basically saying is this, it's not just by claiming, I love my neighbors, if you are a lover of God. No, it will show basically in your deeds, you will be generous to your own brethren. You have this need, your brethren have this need, and they need it, basically, and they don't, can't afford it, and you yourself have it, and you say basically, that if this brother, if you see your brother in need, and you close your heart to him and say, basically, go and come back another time, I cannot give you now, or oh, I I, 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 I'm using this thing for another thing, and this brother truly needs this thing, and you're not using it, or you don't need it yourself. And John is saying, basically, can I give him this thing. Why are you closing your heart to him? Why are you stinging with it? Why are you greedy about this thing? This is a brother in it. And John is asking, How does the love of God abide in such a person? If wickedness and greed is in your heart, how can the love of God actually abide in you? So it's not by saying, I love God. He's going to show forth in your deeds. He say We're to love indeed and truth. The two of them go together. So that is the mark of someone who loves God. It's The deeds show forth, basically, that like this person is a lover of God. This person is going to be generous. He's going to love his neighbor. He's going to love the saints, the community of faith. He's going to do good to the household of God. He's going to be uh, someone who shows hospitality to people. These are the marks of true love for God. And Another thing is basically someone who loves God is not a lover of the world. First John two verse fifteen to seventeen says, "Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever." So it. It's saying basically this, that do not love the world. Everything that is in the world is passing away. They are, they are not eternal. These are just things that we are saying, and they are going to pass away. The world is going to be destroyed. So why are you going after all these things? Why is your heart in these things rather than on the will of God? See, so we have to shake our hearts. Do we really love the things of the world? Or it's actually the will of God that we love? We can't love both at the same time. James even tells us, says that if you love the word, basically, a friend of the word has become an enemy of God. You have just declared yourself to be an enemy of God if you basically love the word. So the true mark that you are a lover of God is that you do not love the word. You do not love the things of the word. You do not love the uh, lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. All the form of immorality that is going on in the world, you do not love it. Now, let's look at what it means to be called according to God's purpose. It means basically that you are called according to God's intention. What are the proposed uh, or Purposes or intentions God has appointed us for. The first one is basically God's purpose for calling us is in holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17 says, then First Thessalonians 4, verse 7 says this. Verses number 4 verse 7, and it says, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. God did not call us to impurity, but called us to holiness. There's no such thing as forgiveness without holiness. There's no such thing as justification without sanctification. That is the main reason God has called us. That is what God has appointed us for, unto holiness, unto sanctification that we are to be set apart in our lives, in our deeds. God has not called us to imp- unto impurity. So we need to recognize that fact. the reason God called us basically is for suffering. And this one doesn't usually come to our mind, but the Bible actually says God called us for suffering. First Peter 2 verse 18 to 21 it says, Saman, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this fine favor." If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if you, when you sin and are actually treated and you endure with patience? But if you have, if you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This fine favour with God, for you have been called for this purpose. You have been called for this purpose, and what's the purpose? For the purpose of suffering, and sometimes my reason that. <laughs> Why should I suffer as a Christian? Hasn't Christ suffered everything for me? And the Bible is telling us basically that Christ basically is suffering for you. He's living an example for you to follow. If we are to follow Christ in everything, we are to follow him basically in his words, in his lifestyle. Everything that he did. So we can't say that we want to follow Christ in everything that he did and exempt the suffering part. Christ suffered, leaving that as an example. His lifestyle was an example for us, and his suffering basically was an example for us that we are to follow as followers of Christ. That is the purpose of God calling us. And in this verse, basically, the context basically states that this is the purpose ultimately that God is calling us for. In this text, he's saying that for those who in for you are also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. That is the ultimate reason God called us, that we should be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. Conformity to Christ is the purpose that God actually called us for. Now, let's look at what the terms used in this text mean. For new, for new, basically, means to, to know beforehand. It's used in Acts 26, verse 5, and it says, basically, So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up. Which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest set of our religion. Now, in this text, this guy is implying that they knew something about Paul for a long time, which is the Jews. They knew something about Paul for a long time, his way of life and living as a Pharisee. It doesn't imply anything about the personal relationship between Paul and the Jews. This word for new is also used in Romans 11 to it. It says, God has not rejected his people, whom um, he foreknew. Whom um, he foreknew. And in this context, you saying that, foreknew is used in this context that God knew beforehand the Jews. It doesn't imply that God was in an intimate relationship with individual Jews. It does imply God had a relationship with the Jews corporately. And the text doesn't tell us, basically, what he knew about the Jews. It's, for the word for new is also used in First Peter 1 verse 19 to 20. It says, uh, But with precious blood, as of a lamb, blem- unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but as appeared in the last times, for the sake of you. And this text, Christ is, was known before the foundation of the world, it was known as the unblemished lamb. This word for new is also used in 2 Peter 3 verse 17. And it says, You therefore beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. So for new is used here as knowing this beforehand. What I didn't know in this is written earlier on. It says, Know this first of all that in the last days, with mockers will come, with their mocking, following after their own lust, and say, where is the promise coming? So that is what uh, uh, Peter is telling them, knowing this beforehand. What I've told you, basically, is to keep you ahead, to keep you warned, to help you to be able to stand your guard in the days that are to come, basically. So this is what is giving them a warning. So knowing this beforehand. So that's what the word for new just simply means it means to know beforehand or to know before and in this our context paul is using for you it means to know something for new here means to know about someone sorry to know about someone beforehand that's what for new means in this context of romans 8 29. now the next thing we have to look at is predestined what does predestined mean it means to destined before it means to prepare a particular destination. It doesn't mean predetermination. It means pre-intention intended beforehand. Other things that help us to understand uh, predestination is this. Acts 4 verse 27 to 28. It says, For tr- for truly in this city they will gather together your holy servants, whom you anointed, but Herod, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And it's basically saying that they are doing whatever God's hand and God's intention, God's purpose intended to occur. So this was God's intention that these men were doing. It's also used in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 7, but we speak God's wisdom be the mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. This is what God intended before the ages to our glory. That's what he said. It's also used in Ephesians one five and Ephesians 1, 11. It Says he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, to so Himself according to the kind intention of His will. He intended us to adoption. Ephesians 1.11 says, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works out after the counsel of his will. So he's saying, basically, that we have been intended, pre according to his purpose. You see the word purpose, basically. And coming in again, purpose, intention, all going together, basically what it means to predestined and predestined is always to something it's not divorced out of something they are predestined is basically saying that this is a particular destination this is the intention for why you have been predestined or something this is the particular destination and why we have been predestined is to be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus it's not that we have just been predestined we have been predestined for something that is the way we must understand predestination. It's a biblical term that we must understand in the context of Scripture that you are predestined for something, which is to be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. Now, what does the word conform mean? Conform basically means to, to make similar in form, on this show, to adapt something to look like the other thing. So, God wants us to be conformed to Christ in our whole being, spirit, soul, and body, as the past generations were... So we are to be Christ like in everything. Christ is the image of God as Adam was. Christ is the last Adam. The fall, the fall basically made the whole human race fall short of the image of God. Now, God is now redeeming all who are in Christ Jesus to a greater image than Adam was. And we see this basically in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there also there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written. The first man Adam became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So you see the contrast here. Adam is the living soul. Christ is the last Adam, a life-giving spirit And you are seeing this guy that something is greater with Christ than the image, the first image of God, which is Adam. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven, so the first man basically had is earthy, The second man is heavenly. So there's something greater again, as is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. and as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have born the image of the earthy, so we bear the image of the heavenly. So as we have born the image of the the earthly image of God. We are going to bear the heavenly image of God, which is we are born the image of Adam, which fell short of the image of God. So in if you are in Christ Jesus, you are going to bear the image of Christ, which is the heavenly image of God. So we need to understand that this is a greater contrast, a greater image. So the f- way we are to be conformed is that we are to be conformed to Christ in our minds. You remember Romans 12 verse 2, it says, And do not be conformed to this word, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. This we are to be transformed by our renewing of the mind, by keeping ourselves in the word of God. Our minds are to be transformed. That is the way you can keep yourself from conforming to the word. So if you do this, it says you will be able to prove what the will of God is. What is that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So when your mind is renewed by staying in God's word, something is going to change. You are going to be conformed in mind to Christ Jesus. We are also to be conformed in suffering. Paul says in Philippians 3.10, it says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be conformed to his death. So you have to be conformed in mind. And also in sufferings, you have to look like Christ in suffering. Having a koinonia with his sufferings and being conformed to his death. It doesn't mean that we are going to die exactly the way Christ died. But there is something of which Christ passed through that we are going to experience too in this life. Which is the suffering. We can be able to relate with Christ's suffering basically because we are going to face it too in this life. It's not an optional extra for a Christian. A Christian basically has been called unto the purpose of suffering. We are also going to be conformed in the future to Christ's body. Philippians three twenty 20-21 tells us, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we are eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. By the exertion of the power that he was given even to subject all things to himself so christ is going to transform our body that it has this uh, state of humiliation to a body that has glory first john 32 also says that beloved now we are children it has not appeared as yet that we what we will be we know that when he appears we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So we are going to be Christ-like in bodies too when Christ appears. So mind suffering in our bodies. Now, we are being conformed presently in this our present time that we are living in to the image of Christ. Second Corinthians 3, it says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So basically the same basically is this that you look put in a mirror or a statue a mirror there and you see the glory of the Lord. As you put your focus on that glory, you yourself are being transformed to that image. So just imagine this that Christ is like a statue, and you put your focus among Christ, and most of the time, when we make uh, well, this is usual with humans. When we make idols of human beings ourselves, we find out that you become transformed to that person. For example, most of the time we say we have role models, we have people that we are looking up to. And you, if you watch your role model a lot, if you become obsessed with the role model, you find out that you begin to start behaving like that role model in almost everything. You begin to speak like them. You Sometimes you, move, sometimes you move, try to have their own uh, accent, the way they speak, you almost speak it the same way with them. That you to get to a point that you cannot even find a difference between the role model and this guy himself. So this person has become your idol and you have almost become like the person. So, and the Bible also says that those who make idols will, and worship idols will become like their idols. So if Christ is the one that you are worshipping, if Christ is your idol, basically, guy, you are going to become like Christ ultimately. So if you look at Christ in the Gospels, you put his image there as a statue that this is what I want to be like. You focus upon Christ. In no short while, you are going to be transformed basically to becoming like Christ. You are going to speak the way Christ will speak in every situation. You are going to act the way Christ is going to act in every situation. So, when you put Christ as the focus, you don't even, you will get to a point, you don't even to be asking, what would Christ do if you were to be in this situation? You, yourself, would behave the way Christ would do in that situation. you behave the way Christ would behave in that situation, because Christ has not become your role model. And what I'm saying is a typical example in lifestyles that we know. Look at people who place idols basically. Some people might place a preacher, let's say a preacher basically, as the idol. And I love this preacher, I am so obsessed with the preacher. You listen to this preacher over time, you read their works, their materials. Even though you have not seen the preacher face-to-face, basically, in relationship, you have not seen this guy in, in the flesh, basically, to put it in that terms. You will find out the certain point that he starts speaking like this preacher. And it's almost like as if you are mimicking this preacher. And same thing with Christ Jesus. He puts Christ as the focus, as you are seeing his image, that... that has being brought to you through the pages of scriptures, in one way or another, you are being transformed into that image. Suddenly, it means that you it look like as if you are mimicking Christ Jesus. Colossians 3, 8, verse 10 tells us the practical term, how we can be conformed to Christ presently. It says, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth, Do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with his evil practice, and have put one on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So, all these sinful habits, basically, you have to put them aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, lying. Put them aside. Be transformed to that image of Christ. This is not the way you learned Christ. This is not what you have seen from Christ. So what you have seen for Christ, this is what you have to practice basically in your life. And all this is basically the work of the Spirit, the Spirit to be transforming us, bringing us to a deep intimate relationship with the Christ that we have truly come to know. And if Christ is your idol, wash out, it will show forth in your life. You are going to be transformed and conformed to his image, which God had predestined and intended you to become. So God is wanting a people who are Christ-like. That is what God wants. A people who are like his son. That is what he desires. So we may ourselves, basically, may have different ways. We may have diversity. We may have... It doesn't mean that because we are Christ-like, all of us will behave one same way, the uniform way. No, there will be diversities in our way we reflect Christ. In our reflection of Christ. But one thing we can say that we all agree on is that all of us are Christ-like. Even in the midst of that diversity. Christ-likeness doesn't mean that there is uniformity among God's people. It does mean that there is unity and diversity among God's people. All of them showing different reflections of the image of Christ. That is one thing we are going to see among the saints. Now what does the word firstborn mean? Firstborn, it means to be first, <laughs> means the first to be born, literally. It could also mean some other things. Um, if you look at Colossians 1, verse 15 and 18, it says he Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And there it simply means that Christ is the supreme over all creation. Colossians 1 15. It says he, he Colossians 1 18, sorry. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to our first place in everything. So Christ is also the first to be resurrected. That's what he's saying. Hebrews 12, he says, To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, the air is used as Christ being the owner of the church. Revelation 1, 5, he says, And from Christ Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, so Christ is basically the first to be resurrected. That's what he's saying in that context. Now, uh, Paul says basically in this is our text here, says Christ is basically the firstborn among many brothers. I take the meaning here to mean that Christ is the first to be resurrected from his family among his brothers. And that is the truth. That is what scriptures teach us that Christ is basically the first to be resurrected. Is like the first fruit from the dead before everyone will be resurrected. So Christ had a family before him, which is this guy, the family of we know where Christ came from. Christ was a Jew, so these were the family of the saints that were prepared before, and these were Christ's brethren before Christ came. God had prepared the family before time in past generations before Christ came. We ourselves are also the family of God. God has made us into that new one new man, Jew and gentiles into Christ Jesus, basically. So Christ had that family, and out of all his family of the past generations, Christ is the first to be resurrected out of that family. That's why he's called the firstborn among many brethren. The code, basically, in this context, is it's quite the code in uh, verse 29, is quite different from the code in uh, verse 28. Sorry, the code in verse 30 is is quite different from the code in verse 28. So, the two different Greek words are used. This one means to summon or to invite. So, it's basically saying that God called you. God invited you. God summoned you. And how did God call you? Or how did God call these people? God called these people. God invited the people through the gospel, through his Holy Spirit. You remember even Abraham himself as a pagan. God called him. God had intended the purpose for him. And God called him at the right time. And told him this guy to leave Susan and place. And in this our present time, God is also calling us. And God calls us and God invites us through the gospel to come into his kingdom. God is inviting us to come into his kingdom, to enter into his kingdom, that the kingdom of God is now here. So through the gospel, God is now saying that you can be a member of this kingdom. You can be an heir of this kingdom. And God does that through the gospel as his Holy Spirit preaches the gospel through us. As we are preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit is walking into the hearts of those people to call them into the kingdom. So, it's actually God that is doing this calling, not us. Even though we might be the ones that are preaching this gospel, it's God that is calling the people through the gospel because the gospel is obviously God's gospel. So, it's God that is still calling them. His Spirit is working in those people because without the Holy Spirit, we cannot convince people. We cannot convince people of the truth of the gospel. So, it's God that calls them into the gospel. So, we must understand that. The next stage is biblical justification. Which means that God is the one who justifies. Justification means to declare one righteous. I remember Abraham, the first thing that happened to him, basically, God had pre intended for him to be conformed to the image of his son. And after God predestined, God called him. And Abraham basically answered the call of the Lord. After calling him, Abraham was justified, as usual. That was the next stage. Abraham got justified. And he was declared righteous. Romans 4, verse 2 to 3. It says basically that the God, if for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. But for what the scripture says, Abraham believed God and it was created to him as righteousness. So God declared Abraham righteous for believing in him. So justification is true faith. After God has called you, how can you be justified? How can God justify you? You believe in him. For you to be justified, for God to declare you righteous, you have to believe in him. You have to believe in what he says. You have to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. That is the way you can be declared righteous. That is the way you can be justified by God. And this justification is through faith that works. That is the point of James 2. It's not just basically uh, a profession of faith. It's a possession of faith. Faith is something that is tangible that you can't see. You remember our Lord Jesus Christ will be using terms that I've not seen a faith like this in the whole of Israel. So he's saying basically the faith basically can be reflected through the actions. It's a faith that works basically. It's not just a kind of dead faith, it's a faith that is alive, that does something. So faith is something that does something. It's not just a profession of faith or it's not something that just I do there. It's tangible, real. So that is the faith that justifies, and uh, the next stage basically is saying is that God glorifies it, means to clothe with splendor and glory, it could also mean praise and honor. In Acts 3, verse 13 to 15, it says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son, his, uh, Jesus Christ, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release it, but you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a mother to be granted to you, but, to, but put to death the Prince of Life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And glorified here in this context, in Acts 3 verse 32 to 15, is connected with resurrection from the dead. So that's what it means basically to glorify, basically to transform, when your body should be transformed, basically from this your body and now giving glorified bodies to Christ's body, the Christ-like body, basically. When your body has been conformed to Christ-likeness in totality. So that is the last stage. But now glorified is used in the past tense here. This is what I believe Paul is saying. Paul is saying this, that, if you are dead in if you have died in Christ, you are as good as glorified. And that is the truth, basically. That is why Paul uses glorified in pastors, even though nobody has yet been resurrected. Even though those people in the past generations that he's talking about have not yet been resurrected, but they are as good as glorified. We see these connections in the scriptures in of suffering and glory together through death. Uh, Hebrews 2 verse 9 to 10 says, But we do see. Who was, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might t- taste death for everyone, for it was fitting for him, for whom all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So basically, people who suffer, basically, guy as good as glorified when they die. So that's the way Paul... Is saying this about them, uh, about these people, basically. That is what I believe Paul is saying. Now, that's why the tense is in the past tense. It's not meaning, it's not saying that those who are justified or there's a kind of chain of sal- salvation that those who are justified are uh, uh, glorified automatically because they have been justified. Paul has already been saying that provided we suffer with him. That is the way we can partake of his glory. That is the condition of partaking of his glory. So Paul is talking about the past generations in this text. Now, suffering to glory has always been a pattern for saints all throughout history. So we cannot avoid that. So you can be assured that you will be glorified if you persevere through suffering. You will know true that God causes you know truly that God causes all things to work for good to them that love him. And we see this clearly in Hebrews 11. Let me read some verses for you from Hebrews 11. It says, For by faith when, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. You see the word called used here. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise; for he was looking for the city which has foundations, who architects and builder is God. Verse 13 to Hebrews 11:13 to 16 says, "All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country." They are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as this, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Choosing rather to endure ill-treatment with the people of God. You see the, word, the suffering there again. Uh, than to enjoy the pe- passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ. Greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith left Egypt. Not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured se- a him who is unseen. So you see here again. God's pattern again. Has always been suffering to glory. They are looking for something greater. Not just thinking about this present life, their eyes were basically on their own sin, and that is the way they were able to go through the suffering. So, when you look at the life of saints, we can have comfort that this our suffering was going to inevitably end in glory. Verse 35 and 30 to 39 says, Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others received mockings and scourges, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were thrown into, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves, and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So they themselves did not receive what was promised. These people in, uh, in uh, Hebrews so one thing we must recognize is that sometimes the good does not always come in this uh, lifetime. We have to recognize that. So we've been saying that the good that Paul is meaning here is that good in this lifetime. No. He's saying that ultimately it's going to result in good. Even when we see this in the life of Joseph. You see Joseph, basically, as a man, in Joseph story in Genesis, you keep on saying that the Lord was with him. You see that particular word, the Lord was with him, even when he was going through he moved from the, his brothers, put him in the pits, they sold him to the Midianites, they moved to Potiphar's house in Egypt. They were sold to Potiphar in Egypt as a servant. He became an overseer in Potiphar's house. From there, he went to the prison because of Potiphar's wife, and from there to Pharaoh's throne in Egypt. That is how uh, Joseph's story went. He went through suffering and the good ultimately came in this life for Joseph. But it will still come ultimately in the in eternity for Joseph too. And we see again, basically that God was with him. In all the suffering that he might have gone through, God was with him. Joseph was able to see in Genesis 45, verse 7 to 8, it says, God sent me before you to preserve you, for you a remnant in the earth, and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Now, therefore, it is not you who sent me here, but God, and he made me a father to Pharaoh, and, to lord, of, and lord of all his household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now, the brothers may have thought that it was them that was doing this thing to Joseph. That they were the ones that put him into pits, that they sold him into slaves. But Joseph is telling them that it's not you people that are doing this thing. God was actually causing all these things to work together for good. That is what he wanted them to see. That God was actually causing these things to work together for good. And Joseph said in uh, Genesis 15, verse 19 to 20 But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present results, to preserve many people alive. And the good was basically God's purpose. God wanted to preserve the people of Israel. He wanted to preserve the sons of Israel and Israel. The Israelite, who, who was going to bring the Messiah through. And this is why Joseph basically had to go through all this suffering. And it ended in good. And they themselves did not they thought that they were doing these things from their own free will, basically. It was actually their own responsibility. They were responsible for the sufferings they had. They made Joseph pass through. But Joseph could look in 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 hindsight and say basically it was God that was doing all these things. Even though you people well, may not have known, it was God that sent me there. You meant this thing. This was the purpose that you meant this thing for. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Psalm 37 verse 23 even says that the steps of the righteous man are ordered by God. So I want to tell you this, that whatever you are going through, be it cancer, loss of employment, loss of child persecutions, loss of family, just know that the end result is good. as Joseph was able to say it, Even though these things are meant for you for evil, God is meaning this for good for you. I tell you the truth that good may not always be in this life for everyone, but it will ultimately be for everyone in eternity. We see that for Joseph, the good was in this life, but also for those in Hebrews 11, it was in the life to come. Therefore, having those heroes that have gone before us, Find that as an encouragement while looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that all will result in good. It may not look good now, even throughout this life, but like Joseph, I promise you, on the basis of God's word, you will be able to look at your life here on earth and see they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God used them all, both the good and bad experiences for my ultimate good. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that has come so preciously to our hearts. We pray, O Lord, that as we go back to what you have said in this scripture, that we'll be able to find ultimate comfort for ourselves. That you, O Lord, that whatever we are going through in this life, all the bad experiences, all the good experiences, is meant to work for us in an ultimate good. That we all will be conformed to the image of your Son in all our being. Ultimately, he is the good one, as you, O oh Lord, is good, are good. There is no one good but you, Lord. And Lord, may we, O oh Lord, recognize this and look to Jesus Christ, the author of the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that he was said before he was able to endure the suffering of the cross. And may we be able to do the same, Lord, this we pray in Jesus' name.